0: Hello and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host Dr Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife and I'm joined weekly by my co-host B from Core and Flora Store and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. It's me here, Mel again and Bees here with me as usual. And today we're talking about my specialty is private practice midwifery in Australia. And many of you, I don't know if you if you have not listened to episode 1 of The Great Birth Rebellion podcast, or follow B or I on social media. It was the best podcast,
1: really. the best podcast of the whole series.
0: It was. And that's where I got to practice my editing skills. And I'm pretty sure I went way over the top. And it's really shockingly, like a shockingly quality
1: podcast. It's terrible. I remember listening to it being like, what has this person done? And I don't think I can work with her. It's been a process of growth, hasn't it?
0: And I'm so glad to be persevered. Hopefully, as bad as the podcast is ever going to get, is episode one.
1: Just remember being like, "What did you do? Uh-huh. What did you do to our story?" I just completely I like. I don't think this relationship is going to work. You are too, which is hilarious, right? When you look at our personalities, like I definitely was that person. Hundred percent would have been with you that I've had some growth, <laughs> but all your life you're totally rebellious and then there's this control part of you that's not rebellious, that's like has to, had to edit everything out. And I was, it didn't fit. Like when I listened back, it's the only podcast I've ever listened to of ours, and then I was like, I can't listen to any more of them because I'm just going to need to trust that she's going to do what she needs to do. But listen back, like this is not the Mel I thought, she was
0: right well, w- well, yes, I feel like I'm mellowed, and please, if you do ever listen to any of our podcast episodes B, I can reassure you that they are only getting better and uh the editing is becoming Just less me. Better. What's that song um
1: what's that song Just keeps getting better. I feel like it was a Cadbury song oh,
0: getting so much better all the time. That one, oh, that
1: was a beautiful tone. Your singing's getting better too.
0: Wow. Okay. Look at us growing in our (laughs) skills. And um, yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to say about that episode one is that we gave people a bit of you butchered
1: it. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: Hundred percent butchered it. But what it did have was cold hard facts about our our career history and life stories. And so what I'm saying is, is if you haven't listened to episode one, you wouldn't necessarily know that I, my main career trajectory is as a privately practicing midwife and educating privately practicing midwives and other midwives, obviously through this podcast and various other avenues. But uh, yes, so I feel like I have a load of authority in this space because I've been a privately practicing midwife for 15 years and I have never worked in a hospital except for that blip in time where they force you in there as a student. So yeah, I feel like if anyone's going to talk about private practice midwifery in Australia, it's going to be me and I'm here for it. And And I have my own podcast, so I get to do that. And I will also mention to everybody that B is currently walking on her treadmill and podcast in, in a skirt,
1: in a skirt, and sandals. Hundred
0: percent. So you know, yeah, the standards have definitely changed since episode one. It's a
1: beautiful episode already. We'll that see. Does. This one's all been edited out. It would have, yes. Back in 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 episode one. So, and I'm just extending it to see how far I can push Mel. That's so you can understand what's going on here. That's the end. It's done. We've done it. Anything okay, we need to move on. Okay, we've reached a yeah. threshold. Right. So <laughs> we are talking about privately practicing midwives, which I still remember. And I said this, I think, in episode one, but you probably cut it. Being like, who is this woman coming out and just going into private practice? Like, that's not what you do. You've just broken the rules, mm-hmm. you haven't done your time. Also, who is this woman going in with the big gun straight away? Like, how dare you just work with the darling straight up the bat? Who gets to do that?
0: Uh, I 100% just completely flipped the system on its head and obnoxiously and stubbornly just pursued the path of private practice like a complete why? idiot. Why did you not want to work in the system at all? Okay. Well, I guess my backstory is I was a naturopath first. And so when you're a naturopath, you have this very strong belief that the body works and that physiology is is king and that you can trust it and that the body's capable, which is the same philosophy that midwives are supposed to have around birth, right? So I thought, great, naturopathy, midwifery, they're both wellness-based, where you're looking after well people going through various life stages and you want to support them with your therapy, with your medicine, with your skills, whatever you've got. And so then I went in thinking, this is what I'm going to do as a midwife is just support physiology as I do as a naturopath and realize that the system is not geared towards supporting physiology. It's geared towards believing that childbirth is a illness that needs treatment, which which was the complete opposite to the naturopathic philosophy. And in the naturopathic philosophy, we fight against the medical philosophy that Separates mind and body, and that tries to treat everything and define everything and box everything in. And so, when I was looking at midwifery and the hospital, I was looking at it with naturopathic eyes and going, Whoa, this is so wrong. And so, I just couldn't get my mind to tick into believing that medicalizing childbirth was a good idea, and knew that if I kept working in a system that made me do that, that I would make myself emotionally, mentally, and physically sick by doing something that was so against my moral expectation of myself.
1: Okay. But did you work privately as a naturopath? Yes. Okay. So you already had the experience of working privately, which is mammoth, right? Because most of us that go into midwifery don't have that. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, so I got, I did my prescribing course and I did everything. I had everything ready to get endorsed back in 2016. Right. And I didn't put it in, even though I was on the board of directors for the Australian College of Midwives when this was all getting passed. And everyone was like, everyone just get endorsed so that, you know, we've fought so hard for this thing. Everyone, every midwife just needs to get endorsed so we can prove that. We needed it in the first place kind of thing. So that's why I kind of did it because I had zero intentions of ever working privately, zero, because I liked the stability of the system. I liked that they paid me. I liked that I knew what pay I was going to get. I liked that they sorted out my superannuation and my tax and they found me the client, (laughs) right? Like just and that I wasn't in. This is hilarious because this I just almost blurted this out without thinking about what then happened after that, with thinking I was safe and I was never going to get in trouble. Um, which is hilarious because I got in big trouble with the system. But I always felt safe in the system for all the reasons. Whereas you entered the system already knowing that beautiful glimmer or possibility of working privately and knowing probably so much about it that, that comes to this, right? Because there's a lot working for yourself that is big. And you think about the people that do midwifery, often we're women, often we're mothers, often we're time poor. And so to set this kind of stuff up is huge. So, yeah, I did all the things and then I never put the paperwork in because I was like, why would you want to work privately? That is so scary.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, there are elements that are scary, depending on your mindset. So, and and you bring up an interesting point, which I'd not previously considered why it probably felt less frightening for me to enter into private practice. As a teen, my dad owned businesses. And as a teen, he put me in managerial positions in some of these businesses during my HSC. I got sent to conferences on how to run these this franchise, and as a sixteen year old, sat in room with business people because my dad couldn't go to the conference, so he would send me to report back on what head office was saying. Um, so as I look back at it, business being in business was part of my life
1: already as a teen. And so and your story around it, because this is the this is the crucial bit. Your story around it is that it's safe and you can be successful. Whereas other people like me, I watched my parents, my brother bought a pet shop when I was in year six, and my dad ran it for him. And my dad had just been retrenched, made made redundant. And that time in our life was hell because the pet shop was an hour away, so it was two hours of driving every day. Financially, it didn't do well, and it was horrible for our family because we were losing money. It was incredibly stressful, and it, the flow-on effect was huge. So there's two very different imprints there, right, which is you've got as a 16-year-old teenage girl going to conferences like what that builds in your personality and what that sets you up for is massive right like that is a huge part of your story and your belief system of i can do this i am powerful i can make my way it's safe and i can be and it and it's going to be successful like that's your path whereas i've got don't do that. Don't go private. That's scary. That's not good for the family. Just stay within the system in the workplace. That will keep you safe. And so I wonder if, as we're telling our stories, people are starting to reflect on theirs and what they grew up with and money stories, because most of us have huge, huge money stories and they hold us back a lot. Some of them push us forward and yours pushed you forward. hundred
0: percent. And, and it, I didn't realize what a privileged position I was in until I started speaking to other midwives who would say, like, I could never do that. That, like, I, and you know, I don't want to be in business. I just want to be a midwife. And I'm like, well, okay, if you want to be in private practice, you 100% are in business. In fact, you are a businesswoman and your service just so happens to
1: be midwifery. So I think. What? But you think about how many of us grew up with businesswoman parents. Right. Right? Yeah. Like I have totally flipped thousands of generations of stories around with me because I am the paid worker in my family and my husband is the primary caregiver. My children are the only children in our whole ancestral line on both sides that are watching a woman do that. hmm which that brings me to tears. Like it's so, it's giving me goosebumps and I'm getting all like, oh, that's huge, right? Because he stays home and looks after the children. He still does elements of paid work. He packs all your orders for those of you that support our shop. But I do the majority of the making money. I just want to
0: tell people I'm thoroughly impressed because bee spent this whole time walking. She doesn't even
1: sound puffed. I mean, maybe she does sound... I, mean, I, I think I, I think I sound a bit puffy, but that's okay. It's just quite out on me, but I'll just keep talking and then I'll mute myself and fix it. But, you know, most of us didn't grow up watching women in business. So to figure out what that looks like and what that looks like, not just as a woman, but as a mother, is massive.
0: And what we've also not been offered here, particularly in Australia is when you go in to learn to be a midwife and go to university, we're absolutely 100% groomed and assumed that you're going to be working in a hospital setting and that you're going to fall into line and that you're a good girl and you will you will slot into the hierarchy and do what's expected. And being in private practice midwifery completely breaks out of that mould and we're not really invited to do that as midwives. We're expected to be subservient And so it's an unusual situation for a midwife potentially to believe that she's actually or he's actually allowed to do anything else other than work in a hospital. And so today I want to talk through the option of being in private practice as a midwife here in Australia and just map out how possible it is uh, and that it's not out of reach, that there are pathways that are forged for us to get to this place, um, they're not necessarily illuminated with all the exact signage that you need, so you know which way to go. But hopefully, today's episode will help bring some light to how you could possibly break out of the expectation that you are going to be working in a hospital for the rest of your life as a as a midwife, and explore the possibility of what private practice could midwifery could offer you. And I'm particularly geared it towards Australia because the legislation is so different depending on which country you're in. Like if you're in New Zealand or the UK, or other different places, and even in the US, some some places midwifery is illegal in the US. It's insane. But So I'm very specifically speaking to the legislative climate here in Australia, but there would be takeaway points for people who are listening to this that are not here in Australia. So why don't we kick off with basically what can private midwives do. So, essentially, you know, if you're working in a hospital, you might have found yourself stuck in on a particular ward, antenatal, birth. Oh my gosh, be <laughs> your camera just changed. All I had was a massive shot of your boobs.
1: There it is. <laughs> okay, I'm trying to concentrate. I'm trying to be. Patient. I was increasing my speed because I'm not talking now, so I need to I need to work it a bit more. This podcast recording is training for killer. You're welcome. I'm glad to help with that
0: Um, so all right so what can private midwives do we can work within our full scope of practice across the full continuum so that can be a really challenging place for midwives to find themselves because the main pathway for midwives is that you can get pigeonholed into a particular ward A particular role, antenatal birth, postnatal. Some of us are lucky enough to have found a position in MGP programs, midwifery continuity of care programs, and publicly funded home birth programs. But the vast majority of midwives are on a roster, on a particular ward, often doing the same thing every week. What private midwives do is the full scope, the full scope of midwifery, everything we can possibly do, we do that every week. We do antenatal care, postnatal care, birth care, breastfeeding support, all of the things that we are trained and capable of doing as, as midwives, we are allowed to apply that to ours. So basically, what does that mean? What does scope of practice mean for the people who aren't into midwifery speak? Well, basically, after a woman has a referral to our services, and I'll talk about referrals later, we as private midwives can do all their pregnancy, all their birth and all of their postnatal care. If they choose to birth at home, we can do all of their birth. And again, we'll talk about the birth issue later. If they're having a hospital birth, it looks different depending on your midwife. But essentially we can do all their care. And if they are a well woman that doesn't need the involvement of any other healthcare providers, we might be the only person that that woman ever sees in her pregnancy outside of the initial referral that she would get from her GP to our services. So we can work and do work collaboratively for women's needs. And that is where private midwifery works best, is where the midwife acknowledges her scope of practice or his individual scope of practice and then when they've identified that they're out of that scope of practice or that the woman's care needs need to be escalated then we can refer to specialist services like an endocrinologist or an obstetrician or a pelvic floor specialist or whoever it is that the woman needs to see if they if if the woman's needs have outstretched our scope we never stop being their midwife though so we are their the base level of care for them and if they remain well we might be all they need And, you know, the the woman obviously sources people like acupuncturists and osteopaths and physiotherapists and all these things as well. But it's not like we we used to be called independent midwives. We're not independent. We Mm. are still dependent on the system of other maternity care providers who can serve the needs of this particular woman. And we provide postnatal care all the way up to six weeks. So not many midwives get to provide women with postpartum care up to six weeks and we're Medicare funded to do that in private practice and we have all the equipment that is required to do all of those that work we can prescribe medications we can refer women to for blood tests and ultrasounds and other antenatal tests Women can get a Medicare rebate for a portion of their care with private midwives. So our work is deeply ingrained in the legislative framework and landscape for midwifery care here in Australia. We're not employed by a hospital. We're self-employed, as we are talking about. So we have to open, operate, market our own businesses.
1: In order to get the Medicare rebate, there has to be, at the moment, a collaboration with an obstetrician or a GP obstetrician. Is that right?
0: So, yes, and we'll talk about the the legislation that's around this. Yes, so what happens is, is the woman, I mean, there's a few different ways you can do it, but the woman finds out she's pregnant. She goes to the GP and says, I'd like to hire this private midwife. Ideally, the GP would say, great, here's your referral to your private midwife.
1: Ideally, because they do say no. I had a woman the other day say she went to four GPs to get a referral.
0: Well, unfortunately, they are entitled to say no. We are required to have a referral or what we call a collaborative agreement. But uh, GPs and obstetricians are not required to provide that. So they can opt out, but we as midwives and the women cannot opt out, particularly if they want the Medicare rebate. Yet,
1: though, because I heard it's changing.
0: Correct. So Medicare has announced, and they announced it in the budget in June or July, that they will no longer be requiring the woman to get a GP referral in order for them to access Medicare. But unfortunately, this, this collaborative requirement is actually linked to other parts of the legal framework. So, for example, I need to have either a collaborative agreement or a GP referral in order for my insurance to be valid. And in the safety and quality guidelines that we follow, it also mentions that. However, I have a feeling that the requirement for collaboration potentially started with Medicare and so now when they, when they drop it, and it might take a few years, who knows how long these things take to get into actual words on paper, but when they do drop it, I imagine there'll be some kind of flow on effect through the rest of our legislation that it may no longer be required. But for at least the next few years, and we're recording this in 2023, I believe that for the next few years it will probably just conveniently not be changed even though they've announced that it will be. So maybe, I know I've just given you a whole lot of words there, but why don't we talk about the legislative framework around private practice and then all of this, you'll understand this need for the referrals. So when I, when I started as a private midwife, and this is how I could just literally walk out of my training and into private practice. It was 2009, back then, All you needed was to be uh, registered as a midwife, and then you could gather a whole bunch of whatever gear you thought you might need to be a privately practicing midwife, and then you just started taking on clients and off you went. There was no insurance product, so we were all doing it without any insurance whatsoever. All we were was registered midwives, there was no requirement for experience hours as there is now. And so that's how I managed to slip into private practice without having to fulfill the requirements that everybody has to do at the moment. And I'll talk to those. And whether or not that is a great idea, I mean, I don't think I would recommend it to other people, but I did do it myself. And here I am 15 years later doing pretty well. But I had some very strategic mentorship. Like I sought out people who would look after me and who I could learn from. Um, for hours and hours and hours. So I think that there's something in that. Um, it's not like you should just walk out of your student years and go off and start doing these things. So then in 2010, what we know now as ARPA, the Australian Health Practitioner Registration Agency, APRA didn't really exist before 2010. We were just all registered through the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia, the NMBA. Then when APRA came along, they gathered up us and about I think twelve or fourteen other registered. Healthcare. It was about
1: eight at the time, and they've added more on. I reckon there was nine because that's when I we couldn't register when I qualified because we were waiting for national registration through APRA to come in. So we all our registration all got delayed waiting for it. Right, but yeah, there's more practitioners now than it was back then.
0: Yeah, so ARPRA took over as an umbrella organisation over multiple other registration bodies. And the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia came under the, uh, the new ARPRA umbrella. Now, ARPRA required every single registered healthcare provider to have a professional indemnity insurance product. So what we didn't have as private midwives, who registered midwives, we were private midwives, but we were not insured midwives. And so, under the new APRA rules, if we didn't have insurance, we would have been in breach of our registration. And so, we couldn't work as private midwives. So, almost overnight, that rule in itself could have made privately practicing midwifery and private home birth options extinct, except like three or 4,000 people gathered. On the steps of Parliament in Canberra, and the fun story is is that Qantas ran out of baby seats that that they could have possibly booked on air flights, and people couldn't get flights with their children because they ran out of that ticket option. So that tells you the movement that occurred towards Canberra at that time. I love that, and we're bigger than Taylor Swift, hundred percent bigger than Tay Tay, and so. That happened and it became obvious that we needed a solution because enough people were angry about the fact that they weren't going to be able to have their midwife at their home birth. And so to get around this, what APRA and the the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia did is firstly they found a few insurers that would insure private midwives. What they couldn't find is somebody who would offer us insurance for intrapartum care. So intrapartum is like labour and birth. So we had an insurance, have an insurance product that covers us pro- pro- professional indemnity insurance for the antenatal and postnatal care, but does not cover us professionally for birth care. And so we were given an exemption from the rules that are created. So APRA said, you've got to have insurance. And we said, but we don't have any. There's not even a person who will offer that to us. They're so like, oh, okay, well, that really sucks have an exemption from our rule for the birth part because you guys don't even have an insurance product that covers you for birth. Now, I don't want people to misunderstand and go, well, see, that's because home birth is dangerous and private midwives are dangerous and that's why they can't get insurance. Why we can't get insurance is that there's a few reasons, but basically no precedent has been set here, no legal precedent has been set here in Australia to understand how much an insurance company might need to pay out if somebody sued a private midwife for something that occurred at their birth. And so they don't even know how to price an insurance product like this. And even if they did, there is a maximum of about 250 midwives in all of Australia providing intrapartum care at home. And so there's not even a big enough pool of midwives to contribute enough money to this insurance company to make even a single payout financially worthwhile for an insurance company. Because insurance companies are there to make money, if they're a business enterprise, and insurance is a privilege and not a right. And so that's the situation. So the NMBA and ARPRA identified that there's a massive gap in, in this. And they gave us an exemption. They said, okay, well, you stay registered. You can keep being private midwives, but you've got an exemption for for the insurance that you were supposed to have under our rules. We also, in order to satisfy that exemption, so we have to qualify for that exemption. There's a whole list of things that we need to do, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but there's documents that stipulate what we must do in order to be able to qualify for that insurance exemption. Now, the big fancy element here is, is that the insurance company will not insure private midwives unless they are endorsed midwives. So for those who have no idea about endorsement, and this is what B was talking about, is that she delayed her endorsement, regrettably, and now she is endorsed, as am I. So in Australia, you when you graduate, you're a registered midwife. You register, that's what you are. You can also become an endorsed midwife. Now, in order to be endorsed, you have to have a minimum of 5,000 clinical hours accrued over no more than six years. So it's three years full-time equivalent if you're have if you going to get 5,000 hours, so six years part-time. And also there is talks, they're reviewing the endorsement criteria soonish. I believe that APRA is going to be looking for input on how to change this because they've realized it's a real barrier particularly for women and midwives who are often entering midwifery in their childbearing years and may not be able to have three or six consecutive years in clinical practice because we take breaks to have babies and all kinds of stuff and so to be endorsed you have to have those hours you have to prove those hours Once you've got those hours, you need to have a postgraduate qualification. There's a degree you can do. There's three universities who run it and you can find the details of those three universities on the Nursing and Midwifery Board website. They've got the three courses that they endorse. You have to do a course called uh, Prescribing and Diagnostics for Midwives. And so you do that some of the courses are 6 months some of them are faster some of them a year you can you know anyway have a look at the details so you have to have those two things just to apply to get endorsed so so you've got all that now you've done you've done your extra qualification you've done your 5000 hours then you apply to be endorsed unless you're endorsed you can't get insurance so every single private midwife in Australia is endorsed because we have to be insured for our activities in antenatal birth and postnatal care. And the other thing we get if we are endorsed is a Medicare provider number and a prescriber number and we can purchase the insurance and then we can start giving midwifery care, fully insured, except for the birth, and give referrals and scripts and everything that the woman might need. So... That's the pathway, that's the legislative pathway. And once you've satisfied all that and you've entered into private practice, then there's a whole lot of legislation that governs how we can practice. So we work under the Nursing and Midwifery Board have formulated this quality quality and safety guidelines, which require us to have a collaborative agreement or a referral to our services that demonstrates some kind of collaboration between either a GP who can provide shared care or an obstetrician, or you can have an agreement with a service. And there's some differences state to state and amongst the territories. Queensland's got their act together with visiting rights to a lot of hospitals. Here in New South Wales, there's one that midwives can get visiting rights to, and there'd be a spattering of them around Australia. So yeah, that's the re- and so that's the collaboration requirements. As I said, midwives are required to collaborate and receive referral and get referrals for their clients or from their clients. But GPs, obstetricians, services are under absolutely no obligation to agree to that. And that's been a real sticking point and a real challenge. So the other thing that these quality and safety guidelines require us to do is um, work according to the Australian College of Midwives consultation and referral guidelines. And so there's all of these little avenues that we need to be across in order to be able to prove and demonstrate that we're working according to our legislative requirements. And I know this sounds like really big and super scary and complicated. It's not, once you get your head across this, it's not as complicated as you think. This is kind of the groundwork understanding and then it's one step at a time, like we talked about last week with managing hemorrhoids, um, inch by inch, what do you say, inch by inch, life's a cinch, mile yard by yard, by yard. yard. two damn, damn hard. So if you want to get into private practice, it's inch by inch. It's one bite of the elephant at a time. And before you know it, you are endorsed, you're insured, you're following the guidelines, you're taking clients, all the things. Now, another little fancy quirk. So let's say I've looked after a client, all through antenatal care, cool, I'm insured, I'm endorsed, I'm doing all the things. She goes into labour, she's planning a home birth, which is something that us as private midwives, often this is our usually the bread and butter of our work. There are some private midwives who only work in hospitals and that's a whole other avenue, but a lot of midwives, private midwives get into it in order to provide home birth services. So let's say we are at a home birth and go, ooh, hang on, we need to transfer. So we transfer into hospital. Um, The Nursing and Midwifery Board have required that once we move into hospital, we are no longer the clinical care provider of that woman because she's entered into a service. It's The expectation is, is that the hospital takes over clinical care of that woman and we are relegated to being a support person. We are not allowed to provide what looks like midwifery care. And so That's an insurance issue, basically, because we aren't staff in that hospital. Their insurance will not cover our activities, and our insurance does not cover our activities for birth. So what the NMBA is saying is that once you step into a service, you need to give over clinical care of that client to the hospital staff. Now, I know that sounds a bit scary, but as private midwives, we come with We come with you to hospital and we're with you for support. In the hospital, a lot of what happens is is that we turn into your biggest advocate and your biggest bodyguard and help you navigate the system. So whilst we, most midwives, when they enter in the hospital, unless they have visiting rights at that hospital, uh, go in there as your support person. That's the the basic legal framework around this absolute chaos. And as I said, there's not that many private midwives. And part of the reason is, is these pathways and the requirements for private to get into private practice midwifery are not really forthcoming, easy to find, or easy to navigate. And so a lot of midwives are deterred because it feels too hard and too big. Uh, they might be at a stage in their lives where they're focusing on having and raising families and so can't put their thoughts in this complex area that also requires them to be a business person. And so it's um a bit precarious, a bit tricky, but 100% possible. I mean, cuz I'm doing it currently. That's pretty much all I prepared be. I don't know if you have any fancy questions or anything that you feel like I
1: missed. No, a bigger picture here is Are you happy doing what you're doing? And if you're not, what's holding you back? Mm -hmm. That's the real work, right? That's understanding who you are, what stories you hold, what belief systems you hold, and working through that. It's that deeper stuff of what holds us back in anything in life. But I often find that's what plays out for us is the safety and security and feeling like it's a big Beast that you don't know how to tackle because we weren't taught. Like, if imagine if these were subjects that we completed in our uni degrees, what would midwifery and maternity care in this country look like? Would be completely different. And so, that when we haven't been raised with that as an option, then for so many people, it's not even something that they think is a possibility because the seeds haven't been planted. You know, it's really about having people that you can access to show you the way mm-hmm. um and guide you and mentor you because it can feel big and scary. And it's also about working through why it may feel big and scary for you. But I guess the biggest question you hear is I started to ask it and then I got diverted, which is something I usually do and you edit out, but <laughs> what are you happy doing what you're doing? And if you're not. What would you want it to look like? Mm. And then what's stopping you from that? And I think that that's often the work that needs to happen first. And if more of us can do that, then we will shake the thing, we will shake the whole setup and turn it on its head, mm. which will be incredibly powerful for not just midwives, but all the people we care for. And that's what it what it's really about, right? It's us coming into our power. The other day, and I'm going to totally butcher this, but we put off really valuable things because we think they're so big and hard and we spend time on the invaluable things because they feel easy. But actually the invaluable things often don't serve us and aren't that easy. And if we just flipped it around and just spent that nugget of time doing what is actually valuable to us. So, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, there is part of you that has a little spark that goes, oh, maybe I have to do this or maybe this is for me or maybe it's not for me right now but I want to do it and so I want to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. And that's what you so beautifully offer in your space as well. Well, I have a question around the hours that you need to get. Can they be with a private midwife? Or do they have to be in the system? They don't have to be
0: in the system, but they have to be clinical. So, if you, so this is part of the issue, is that you can't provide antenatal and postnatal care without insurance. So, even if you go out and provide antenatal and postnatal care, uh, and you know, like you, you can't legally provide it in the, like in the community. And so, yes, your hours. So, say for example, at births would count because you don't have to have
1: insurance for that. That's you doing hands-on clinical care. So, Venus, um, so, and we need to get this right here. At the moment, you can be a second midwife to a home birth mm-hmm. without um, being endorsed. Yes. So if you were doing that a lot, you could get your hours up that way. but. <laughs> The reality of that is very small. So you might get some hours from private midwifery and some hours from the system. And that is a beautiful way. Like that's your work experience, right? So you do the second appointments and maybe you go along to some of the antenatal and postnatal appointments as not being paid, just witnessing. but getting to know the person so you can have a better relationship as a second midwife there. And maybe you go as a second midwife to get more hours up.
0: You could. And the other thing that I've seen done
1: before, uh, it's not
0: very widely spread and would be reserved for kind of bigger businesses, but there is an insurance product that allows midwives to hire other non-endorsed, uninsured midwives and bring them in under their insurance product. Um, I've vaguely looked into the details of that, but if somebody is interested, I do have a contact at MAGA that you could talk to about that. Uh, But, you know, there are little tiny possible avenues, but the quickest way is to get it through a hospital service because they're trackable and you can really accrue them quite quickly. And it's a bit more volatile if you're doing it in another avenue. But yes, you can do that. And hopefully when the hours are reduced, if the hours are reduced by APRA, it will be easier to get your hours in, in a setting that you want to work in rather than in a setting that you are trying to escape from. And as you were talking there, I think, you know, it's it struck me that as midwives, our whole training and the whole social messaging gears us or reminds us or encourages, like basically encourages us to think really small in regards to our career
1: opportunities and options. And that's been us as women and girls, right? We have been told, be good, stay small. You know, most of us have been taught stay safe by being small. And so this is about can we grow? Can we be big? Can we come into our power? That's the really big message here and I feel like I hope this is landing for people And like yes I want to be my power I want to be big because then that's how the real change is going to be created like I'm just filled my whole blood's like tingling (laughs) like knowing the ripple effects of this like this is what our students need this is what women and girls need in general is like you can do anything you can take up space We can do what feels right for us. I mean, we're all dead at the end of this. Like, do you want to be dead and have worked in in a job that you've loved? Like, think about how many hours of your life you've spent doing paid work. Do you want that to fulfill you? And I get it. I get that it's hard. It's challenging. There are obstacles, but there's nothing you can't overcome.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And really, if you need to hear this today, there is nothing you can't overcome. And you will find, if you don't feel powerful now, you will find your power on this journey. What And, you know, what is saying is,
0: is, okay, now we've blown the doors open on the possibilities for your midwifery career. You're looking at it going, okay, maybe I could actually be a privately practicing midwife in Australia. And you 100% could. It's not out of reach because there's actually people doing it. I'm doing it. You can earn good money and a proper income working as a privately practicing midwife because I think that's the other, the lie that we're telling ourselves is like, oh, there's no way I could possibly be financially secure
1: working for myself. Okay, so I want to ask that, I'm get, get to the money questions, right? Because I'm it's important because I, I want to know, like as a midwife working in the system, mm-hmm. like, okay, let's just come up with, well, just tell me, four. if you take four women a month, So here's how I do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. People ask me all the time or they comment. So the the big comment is, is, oh, but could you make money doing that? I'm like, actually, 100% you could make money doing that. In fact, you could make money doing it part-time. So let me talk you through that. Okay. And and this is going to be kind of very generalised, but you will get the mathematical idea or the idea of what your earning capacity might be as a privately practising midwife. And then I'm going to tell you how to get there because that's part of what I want to tell people today as well. So let's say that you only work 10 months of the year and you take two whole months off. Let's say you take four clients per month. If you charge, so private midwives charge somewhere between, and this is different for everybody because we're private practitioners, we can choose our price. But let's say somewhere between five and a half and seven and a half thousand dollars Let's put it in the middle at six and a half. So if you've got 40 clients because you're going to work 10 months of the year and you're going to take four women a month, then so 40 times by 6500 equals $260,000. Now, before you get too excited and go, oh, my gosh, I could double my income working 10 months of the year, you're in business. So a portion of this is tax. A portion of this will go to your second midwife, depending on what your financial structure is. Some of this will go to equipment. Some of this will go to in paying for insurance and CPD hours and all these things.
1: And and um, superannuation. Do not forget to pay superannuation. i hope it, yes, I'm passionate about that, especially women business owners. Pay yourself superannuation. But,
0: and then the other question people have is like, but are there enough clients? There are 100% enough clients, and I know this because I rigorously, as a businesswoman, take stock of all the stats in my business, okay? Our company has a spreadsheet. We take, we track everything, and this is just basic business skills. If you're ever in business, you need
1: to know that B's looking at me going, holy shit, I don't have a spreadsheet. Um, I don't do any of this. Okay. And it drives my accountant and people that work with me nuts. But you can you can run a very successful business and not do it. It's working for us. If it wasn't, I would change.
0: Well, my main point of saying this, and it's not to brag; it's to basically share the possibility, is that I track my inquiries. So I track how many people inquire, how many clients I take on, and how many I had to say no to. Last year, I said no. So this is not the people I took on. I said no to 170 women.
1: Yeah. And every time I do a birth prep chat mm-hmm. and people are like, I want a private midwife, I'm all I'm pretty much like you're not going to get one. Because you have yeah. to call them the minute yeah. you pay on a stick. Yeah. Or you've left it like you left it too late. Like you're 24 weeks, your 28 weeks. Like you probably always say try. 100 percent I always say try. Try. You can try and call them. But I always get, I couldn't get one. I couldn't get one. Yeah, the demand is out there. Women want this service. And so like this. And then wanting it more and more because it's now, COVID was a beautiful blessing for that. More people had home births and they realised that it was something that they wanted to do. Like it's grown. So it's, and, you know, I guess the tricky thing here is rural and remote areas. I'm always, my head always goes to rural and remote because I've had so much experience there um and this is where finding your people is super important having a team is super important so you know how awesome to like listen to this and then go to your bestie at work hey let's do this let's find our power let's be the two midwives in this town that do this there and are- you do it together and you go through your endorsement and you set yourself up together like and you know the whole friendship in business thing not going to go there <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. I think, you know, you've got beautiful, effective communication skills and, you know, good boundaries and self-care, which a lot of this takes in business.
0: As I work as a private midwife, I'm also very heavily into mentoring midwives into private practice. And so part of what I want to offer you, if you've listened to this and you're going, oh, my gosh, I really I need more information. 100%. I could not, we cannot tell you everything you need to know about private practice midwifery here in Australia in in an hour long episode. So, what I do once a year, I do this. Um, If you are a midwife in Australia and you want to know much, much more about private practice midwifery, how to get started, all of the details, ask me any of your questions. Every year, I run a one week long video series opportunity and QA and all these things, it's completely free. It, it's designed to help midwives understand more about private practice midwifery. And it it starts on Monday the 16th of October, 2023. But if you're listening to this later, obviously it runs yearly. Like you can still push the button and register your interest in when it comes around again for the year. You'll get access to that year's uh, series So if you go to my website, melanythemidwife.com, I'll put the link in the show notes below. So this free week-long video series, Q&A opportunity, access to me to ask all of your questions and get all the information that you need to know about how to start in private practice midwifery, that week is your opportunity. So as I said, completely free. All the lessons are recorded. So you can watch them at your own pace through the week. And the series will give you what you need to get started, and it'll give you the opportunity to ask the questions you need to know before you decide to make this big leap into private practice midwifery. So sign up at the website. You'll see a button at the top of my website. Just push it. That will mean that you will get access to all of the content that I'm going to release in that week, so that you can better understand what private practice means for you as a midwife, what it, what it, what you can do, all the rules and all the things. So that's what I want to offer you. This one-hour episode is not enough to fully comb through the details, but that one week is a bigger opportunity and it might just give you what you need to move and
1: launch into the next part of your career. That's amazing that you do all that for free. That's incredible. It's such a beautiful, what a beautiful contribution to... The world, like to midwives and families, in the following effect—that's epic.
0: So, I guess. Well, I mean, I'm incredibly, like, incredibly inspired to provide midwives with this level of mentorship and information because I was mentored. Like, that's. I believe that's how I passed through the threshold of moving into private practice. Is that I had amazing people behind me, egging me on and telling me I could do it. My family midwives who gave me their time and experience and opened up their lives so you know this is me paying it forward and there's not really anything like
1: it in Australia where you there's nothing and you know really it's what we need right we all need so a lot of compassion and support that midwifery typically doesn't like stereotypically it's not known for that stereotypically midwives are known to eat their young And, you know, the amount of us that cried in the pan room as students can attest to that. And, yes, even I cried in the pan room. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) And look where I am now. So, um, you know, this, I think this is what midwifery lacks and there's, you know, a lot of divide. We even, you know, the whole caseload versus um, fragmented care, that fights. Private midwives versus public hospital midwives, they fight like There's so much. And so really that's what this is, what it needs is for us to come together more and support each other. Well, the
0: other hard thing is actually it's not all unicorns and rainbows in the private practice midwifery realm either. I mean, because this is business as well, there there are some midwives out there who do not want to help other midwives get into private practice because that encroaches on their territory
1: That's the the belief system that if somebody else comes in, then you're not going to get as much work. What happens if we flip it on the head and go, wow, now there's going to be more work? And, again, it's working through your story to be able to hold that. I mean, you don't hold those stories because this is what you're doing. But a lot of it comes down to personality and the fears that we hold
0: hundred percent. And so, yeah, I just think it can be really hard to break into private practice because there's a lot of barriers. Sometimes midwives aren't forthcoming with giving people the information. But do you know what mostly happens is that midwives are already so busy actually looking after their current caseload and their own private business is that they don't actually have time to invest in another person To help them along uh, which is really challenging and that's no like I don't want to I'm not throwing stones at private midwives here saying like it's our responsibility to to grow the the you know the opportunities but it kind of is like if we don't start mentoring other midwives it's very hard for midwives to uh, move into private practice off their own steam because this information is not forthcoming so if you're struggling to find a midwifery mentor who will take you on this path to private practice, please do take advantage of that whole one-week free information, videos, Q&A opportunities starting from the 16th of October. If you go to my website, as I said, com, just pop yourself on the register your interest list button at the top there and you'll get all that information and, and you get then you get to make a decision about what you're going to do with the rest of your career and tap into opportunities that present themselves, and this is one of them. And now you know, and you can't say you didn't know and that you couldn't access the information because you can.
1: Yeah, and what you're offering is really beautiful and amazing. So get on it, jump on it. If there's been a little fire in your anywhere, in your vulva, in your womb space, in your gut, your heart, your mind, wherever the fire is. We didn't start it. It's yours.
0: You didn't we didn't start, start.
1: It. It's always burning. And now there's opportunities to put some more fuel on it. Get uh-huh. on, Mel's Stuff. It's epic. All right, we're done. I have walked a long way. I've got sweaty armpits. How far did you Sorry, go? I've been huffy in your ear. Mel's going to listen back to this and go, "Oh, actually, you were huffy." No more treadmill. How far did you walk, B, during this episode? I don't know. It didn't do distance. It did time. I'm just. This is the first time I've used this treadmill, so it's just going to take some adjusting. I worked walked for the whole time we've recorded, so an hour and ten minutes.
0: Very good. I'm impressed. I sat here on my.
1: You can't handle sitting. Every come?
0: Well, not I was not at I... a. I was also out at a birth this morning and then on the way home, saw a few clients before even getting to this podcast. So I feel like I've earned a sit down. You have?
1: you made at a birth. How was it? Yeah, it was good. It was good, mostly. After you know, like, at a birth and then you saw clients and now we are here together. I had a massage this morning. Oh,
0: well, I have booked myself. Um, I have a little post-birth ritual. And here in the mountains, there is a... a a Finnish sauna and plunge pool thing. And so so I I know my post-birth ritual is a um, sauna and ice bath journey. It goes for two hours. And so they call it sit, oh, no, sweat, sit, and something else. But anyway, you basically cycle. It's like 30 bucks, isn't it? Like it's super cheap. Super cheap. Shout out to Blue Mountain Sauna if anyone's listening gonna they'd need- like to sponsor Mel. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. It's a massive shout-out. That's like worth oh, something, babe. I did not even think about that. I'm like, I just advertised you, you owe me money, or at least a few free sessions.
1: Yeah, tell them. Hi, I'm Mel. That's the issue. We don't have our faces on the podcast thing. Oh, I know. So people don't recognise us.
0: Do you, know that? Happens, do you know what happens Do you know what happens? Um, actually today, the birth that happened, we we did transfer the woman in by ambulance. It was all fine. Don't be alarmed. Everybody was fine. It was all very precautionary. Nobody, it was beautiful. It was fine. But basically I walked into this birth as a second midwife and the woman had her baby. And um, and afterwards she said, she sort of said, Oh, I listened to your podcast. And I said, Oh, and here I am in your birth space. And it turned out the ambulance officer who came. Uh, had got to talking with the other midwife who was at the birth and he was telling her about how his partner is a midwife and that she's trying to move into private practice and that she listens to this podcast called The Great Birth Rebellion and the midwife said, well, guess what? That woman over there is one of the hosts. And he's like, oh, gosh. I feel like even though our faces aren't on the, the podcast tile, that we're well-known enough that, you know, people, it's ingrained now in, in birth conversations. And yeah. Well, and? We just ticked over to 400,000 downloads. Half
1: a million next month. Yes, it will be next month.
0: will be half a million. And we've only just really, because we... Started podcasting in August two thousand twenty two, so now it's September, so it's been just over a year, so nearly at half a million. I'm very proud of us, considering
1: how badly. I'm that proud was. of all the listeners and the people, the people that print things out with QR codes and put them in I their. Found hospital that Did she, she, she me? Yes.
0: That midwife emailed me and you know, because way back I can't remember which episode it was. We well, were
1: gonna give her an award. You I'm were giving, gonna give her an award. I I'm am. not gonna give her anything.
0: Well, the fun story. So she emailed me. She said, I'm the midwife that put the poster up with the QR code. It was me. So anyway, I am like this close like a centimeter away from getting my getting the great birth rebellion podcast merch.
1: Sort of online stand up. I have no saying, can I just say? I didn't Never even get asked about it. No. Exactly. Somebody asked me and I planted the seed and then you didn't even show me what it looked like.
0: Oh, have you seen it? It's on my it's on my Instagram. It's on your Instagram. It's on my Instagram. My my friend, I have a friend who I was also their midwife, and he's an artist. And I said to him, I want uh, a great birth rebellion podcast logo or whatever it is um brand and I want design. A, woman, a design, and I said to him, I want a woman sort of crouched down. She's going to be giving birth, but she'll be giving birth to this stream of light out of her vulva, and I want it to be, like, psychedelic, right? So anyway, the, the first brief came back, and shout-out to Nick Potts, a, that he's the artist, and he um and he drew this. He fully understood what I was trying to say, Except was so on board that the woman had nipples and pubic hair, which is totally fine. But I said to him, "I'm going to be putting this on shirts, and I don't think the world is ready for nipples and pubic hair on shirts just yet." So it's a it's a tapered down version, um, you know. But still, my I'm mom deeply dad, disappointed. Well, you know, there's still light coming out of a woman's vulva, and her legs are wide open. And like my mum and dad said, that they probably couldn't wear those shirts. They love me. They support my work. My dad thinks I'll one day go to prison for it.
1: But you need to put your dad in the shirt and send him to a conference.
0: Hundred percent. He's got to come to the convergence of rebellious midwives wearing the Anything. shirt. That's gonna happen. What's Mel's dad's name? Louis. My dad.
1: At least your parents know you've got a podcast. My parents don't know I've got a podcast.
0: Mine will share my social media posts. Like that's oh, how. That's very cool. cute. I, you know, he's way on board, very proud. Maybe doesn't understand everything of what's going on, but would probably if I said to him, "You've got to wear that shirt to my event," he'd go, "Okay, what's the address?" That's the type of dad he is. So. You know, stay tuned um, for the merch because it's not far off. I've actually already I've ordered the samples, so they're on their I'm going to
1: get a free copy since I had nothing to do with
0: it. 100%. I think, though, I reckon you, you would have nothing to add to the design because it's perfect. So.
1: Right. i got to go.
0: Okay. Thanks for being here, everybody. That was this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion, and we will see you next week
1: in our next episode. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coramfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Burr Rebellion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right.